Acts chapter 13. One of the one of the concerns that we find within evangelicalism today um, is the agreement or the willingness to hold hands. If you remember, we put some notes on the board with everybody without any exceptions, simply because they claim the name of Christ. This is a very dangerous position to be in because if we're not careful, what ends up happening or what do you think happens if a, if, if say another pastor or a church comes together with another church and they're both not on the same page doctrinally? What do you think happens? Okay, arguments. Okay, what what else can happen? Dissension. Okay, lack of unity. There we go. This is this is the direction. So, how, what might that compromise look like? It, will the liberal church ever ever come in the direction of the conservative church? No. No, absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I have Charles Spurgeon made the comment years ago during what was called the downgrade controversy, and uh, he actually went through a time when, for example, uh, he, they actually had a vote in regards to the inerrancy of Scripture, which I know you've talked about back in the '60s, '70s, whenever it was, uh, in regards to the inerrancy of Scripture. There's nothing new under the sun. And the same battles keep being fought over and over. It's just that the evil one, I think, gets sneakier and sneakier in the way that he approaches it. But they actually voted in England during the downgrade controversy, and there were 2,000 churches that voted against the inerrancy of Scripture and seven churches that voted in favor of it. 2,000 to seven. And out of that, Charles Spurgeon's own brother stood against him during that time, which was one of the most painful things that Charles Spurgeon ever said he went through. But it's interesting that during his ministry, he said that when a church gets to a point where they begin the downward, where they begin the downward spiral into liberalism, they never, ever, ever return. And that's what's sad, because if you look, for example, does anybody have any idea how many different types of Baptists there are just in America? 60. Huh? 60. Oh, there's well over 30. There's over 60 in America. Different types of Baptist denominations. There's everything from Seventh-day Baptists, which actually worship on a Saturday. There's foot-washing Baptists. There's free will. There's Southern. There's independent. There's, 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 huh? Northern Baptist, Conservative Baptist, American Baptist, Regular Baptist, there's all kinds of Baptists that are out there. But do you know why all of these exist? They aren't regular Baptists, but they have a diesel Baptist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> do you know why they exist? Because churches split. Churches do split, but some of the reason is because during the 1800s, most of the denominations that you will find here in America today the reason why they exist is because of the lack of education. Lack of biblical theology that has, that has driven these people. For example, a lot of the, a lot of the cults, uh, Seventh-day Adventists, for example, uh, Jehovah's Witness, the Mormons, 
um, several different offshoots of the Presbyterian Church. They actually came during the mid to late mid to late eighteen hundreds. And the reason that they began these new offshoots, somebody says, well, they got upset about one particular area of doctrine. And instead of studying the scriptures for themselves, what they said was, well, this is, becomes an important issue to us. And so we're just going to start a brand new church. You can go down south, for example, to Virginia and North Carolina, a lot of those places. And if it's big enough town, you'll have Faith Baptist Church or Grace Baptist Church or whatever it is. And at some point, they'll split over the color of the carpet, the color of the chairs, the color of the curtains, whatever it is. They'll go half a block down the street and start Victory Baptist Church because we got the victory. Or you'll go from First Baptist Church and they'll split and they'll become Second Baptist Church. And then Third Baptist Church. I, I remember we were somewhere and there was actually a Sixth Baptist Church in the, that's what they called it. There was a First, a Second, a Third, a Fourth, a Fifth, and a Sixth Baptist Church. It was somewhere down in Virginia. And why do these things exist? Do you know that, that and, and Dad can attest to this one, we were in England. There were churches, some of them with congregations, and, and Brother Sammy, you can probably attest to this if you remember, there were some churches that had congregations that were much larger than this, and you'd have five or six people sitting right here in the middle, and that's all that ever came. And then a mile down the road, you would have another little evangelical church. And it, sometimes, I know where Dad was at, uh, one of the villages around there, there, were at, there was actually one man who would go and preach at three different churches just to be able to keep them all open. They would all drive to go to school, they would drive to go to work, they would drive to whatever, but wouldn't be willing to actually meet together, to come together for the glory of God, to have one growing church. And it's not just there, it's here as well. There are a lot of situations, I think, within evangelicalism that if we were to actually realize that we are in a battle not against other churches, we are not in a battle with other brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are here for one purpose, and that is to glorify Christ. And to glorify Christ, though, does mean that we have to ha have a, a doctrinal position. Because the conservative church, going back to the conservative and the liberal church, if you take the conservative church eventually they are also going to become liberal because they are going to follow the path of least resistance. And unfortunately, you will find that many churches and many pastors, as, as they continue to grow and as they, for example, the critical race theory that's going on, it's a big deal within churches and within denominations right now. But critical race theory says that we can take things like Marxism, we can take Black Lives Matter, and we can take those things and use them as analytical tools within the congregation to be able to transform people by changing the culture. Now, the problem is that we, we have to understand biblically that the Bible is transcultural. You can take the Bible, you can go to England, you can go to Africa, you can go to Asia where, where Brother Mickey was in the Philippines. You can go anywhere in the world, you can preach the same gospel and it has the same effect on people no matter what their culture is. Because you can't change culture to match or you can't change the Bible to match the culture. For example... Is 
Is polygamy wrong in America? Yes. Sure it is. Well, what do you do when you go to a country like Africa, where in Africa, where we were in northern Liberia, where, where polygamy is practiced and it's even found within the churches? Does God change his mind in regards to polygamy? No. No. What's the standard? No polygamy. One man, one woman. One man, one woman. So anything that is outside of one man and one woman is a violation of God's standard for marriage that he established, not the government. Because you can go to a Muslim country. Do you know what the Muslim law is in regards to marriage? Does anybody know? Four wives. Four wives and? You only have to give them like 12 hours notice to divorce them. Okay, and what else? They're allowed to have more than four wives. They can also have concubines. four concubines. According to Muslim law, that's in every country that has Sharia law or that has a Muslim government, they are allowed to do that. So Indonesia, Malaysia, it doesn't matter where it is. Okay? They can, the man can divorce his wife for the slightest infractions whatsoever. She burns the toast, he can get rid of her and get a younger, younger model. So what do you do when you go into that type of situation and you as the missionary are seeking to teach them the truth of God's word, do you have to change the scriptures to be able to adapt so that they'll feel better about themselves? No, if you're a Marxist, Paul. What's that? If you're a Marxist. Well, sure, if you're a Marxist, yeah. But you can't change the scriptures. The Bible is still true, so you have to tell them the truth. Now, there are situations like where we were where we had to deal with polygamy and there was a way biblically, I believe, to be able to handle that. But we don't take those men who are polygamists who have three or four wives and we don't make them or bring them to a point where they're going to violate scripture. For example, where we were, there were some missionaries previously who had come into that particular area of Liberia many years ago and the man would get saved, which was actually very rare. And, and, and I'm going to tell you this, and, and this is probably true in the Philippines, certainly true in England. The hardest people to be able to get involved in church is normally who? Men. The men. You reach the men, you reach the family. Okay? And in that particular situation, the man would get saved, or a man would get saved in the church, but the missionaries wouldn't baptize them. They wouldn't allow them to uh, partake of communion. They wouldn't allow him to be a teacher or anything else in the church, even out in the rural areas, uh, mostly oral. Uh, it was a, it was an oral society where there was no there was no out of the six languages that we had in our area, only one of them was reduced to an alphabet. The other five did not have an alphabet. Okay, um, and so. When we were, when, when these missionaries were going in, they would say, well, if you want to be baptized, if you want to be a part of the church, you have to divorce three of the wives or four of your five wives or whatever it was. And so what do you think the man would do? Do you think he would pick the first one or the oldest one? No, he'd leave. I mean, doubt his salvation. I mean... No, 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 we're not talking about a salvation, but because the missionaries... You, you want to talk about power? A missionary has a great amount of power in a country, especially in a third world country. I mean, whatever the missionary says, pretty much they're just going to believe it. Okay? Now, if, if that missionary tells the man who's a polygamist and he says to him, 
you have to pick one of your wives. If you want to be involved in the church, you have to pick one of your wives and you have to divorce the rest of them. Which one do you think that man is going to pick? His favorite or the youngest one, the one who can still bear in children to be able to take care of him. Now, in a country like Liberia, guess what happens to the wives that get divorced? They're outcasts. The church doesn't provide for them. Under that culture, the man doesn't provide for them. He doesn't provide for his children. So you have people all over northern that northern part of Liberia there, and the wives and the children were reduced to prostitution to be able to take care of themselves. But the man was right with God because Mr. Missionary had said that he was right with God. Now, <coughs> into that type of a situation, what do you do then? Do you keep teaching the same thing, knowing it's destroying families? I mean, after all, we already know that the man is, is, is wrong to have the wives, so now we've come to a situation where we say two wrongs make a right. So we tell them to sin more so that the man can then be accepted into the church. And what we have done is we have taken the Bible and we have twisted things so that the man will feel good about himself. It's called pragmatism at its finest. So in that type of a situation, what do you do? I believe that in that particular area that we were dealing with, I believe the man is still biblically responsible to take care of his entire family. Every one of them. Whether he's got one wife, two wife, or five wives, he needs to take care of her. The Bible says that a man who doesn't take care of his family is worse than what? An infidel. So we were teaching them that they had the responsibility to be able to teach. Now, can that man ever become an elder or a deacon within the church? No, because he has violated God's standards. But what he can be is a testimony to the next generation of what a godly man and a godly father and a godly husband should be doing to provide and take care of his family. And it's no different when you come over here to a modern society. Whatever it is that we struggle with in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis, we have to remember, number one, that God is in control and that the Bible has the answers. Even when we were talking about Haley going down to Austin, there are things that she is going to find. Austin's a completely different place. Mickey can tell you that. I mean, it's a different world down there. And it may be that through the, the people are much more open at times in regards to it's the Bible Belt. Much more, I mean, much more so than what it is here. Now, Austin is a very, also is a very liberal. Uh, environment, a very liberal city. Um, but God can still reach down. I mean, we've been praying for her for a long time that God would change her heart. And it may be that that's where she needs to go. So instead of getting all worked up about it, what do we do? We trust her to the care of God, that God will open the right door so that she'll hear the truth. And it doesn't matter who it is that you're dealing with. It can be your neighbor. It could be your, your, your uh, family member, a close family member, an immediate family member. Uh, if God is in control of all things, we have to trust him with the results. Amen? Because if we can't trust him with the results, who can we trust? Can't trust anybody else. 
Nobody else is looking out for the well-being of our families. So let's look at Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. This is, um, we have, and we've already gone through all of this before, but Barnabas and Saul are sent on their trip. And uh, they go to, uh, they're in Antioch in the middle part of the chapter. And then we come down, he preaches the gospel to them. And then we come to, uh, let's start at verse 20, or 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. That is an amazing testimony to the grace of God that these people who are being, are, are, are being taught by the Holy Spirit of God, that was our lesson that we were looking at yesterday in the men's prayer breakfast, is the Holy Spirit of God moving apart upon the hearts of men and women. And here are some people who are, some of them, not yet believers, who are speaking with Paul and Barnabas and saying, tell us more. We want to know the truth. I mean, wouldn't it be amazing, no matter where it is, if it's in Chicago or in Washington or in the Philippines or wherever it may be, to be able to hear people come and say, you know what, we just can't wait till next Sunday. We just have to know more about the scriptures. I mean, that really is the desire of a missionary or, or of a pastor as he stands in front of his people is that people come not just, not just for the purpose or not for the purpose of saying, well, I ticked my God box off today. You know, and I know several of you have been in, in, in just about all of your homes at one point or another. We've had several of you over. And, and one of the things that encourages me, for example, with the hard hats and the ministry that is there, every morning before they start working, no matter where they're at, they all have, they, they have some kind of a devotional and a prayer time. Find a workplace that does something like that. But they're praying and committing the day to God, no matter what happens. And I think it makes it a lot easier when you're in that situation. So if you're going through the day and you actually accidentally hit the wrong nail while you're doing work for God, what do you do? How do you respond to that situation? Do you trust God? If you're going to somebody, who was it that was talking? Oh, Brother Steve out here. Was, was talking about uh, uh, something that happened to one of his vehicles. And the first thing that went through my mind is, well, obviously God allowed it to happen. We may not like it at the time. There's going to be some cost involved because we live in an imperfect world. Has anybody ever had a perfect set of tools that never broke? Yeah. <laughs> uh, for example, what is the one... It was a big chain, and I know who it is. I'm going to see if you guys can guess. But they had a set of tools, and they had a guarantee that if that tool ever broke for the lifetime of the tool, that you could take it in and replace it. Craftsman. Craftsman. Sears. Okay. Now, why didn't they say, we guarantee that our things will never, ever, ever break? Because they do. Yeah, manufacturing, anything. Uh, what about, what about uh, there's a car that is made, it's a very high-end car, and the engine compartment is actually sealed for the first 100,000 miles. If it breaks within that 100,000 miles, you get a new car. Does anybody know what that was? Rolls-Royce. Rolls Royce. Yeah, 
So we're all going to go out and buy Rolls Royce, right? No, 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 we're not going to do that. Very expensive cars. But they guarantee, but why don't they guarantee it for the life of the car? Because and why not just 100,000 miles? Because you know, how the owner takes care of it, drives it, all that. They, they have no control over it. Have you ever gone on YouTube and seen some of those countries like uh, uh, Dubai or, or United Arab Emirates and see how they treat their cars out there? They actually have races out in the desert and they drive those things on the sand dunes. I mean, they actually launch them off of sand dunes. So I can't imagine that Rolls-Royce would actually want to guarantee a car that gets launched off by a 25-year-old kid you know, wearing one of those Arab outfits. They want to make sure that the car is being protected. But do you know, somebody here has been to Dubai. I can't remember who it is. But I asked them if it was actually true. Probably Al. Al, yes, it was. It was Al. And I asked him, I said, what happens over there when a car breaks down? Doesn't matter what the car is. They just pull it off to the side of the road and they abandon it. Mercedes, Rolls Royce, uh, Lamborghini, Ferrari, it doesn't matter. Because they've got so much money and most of those people who drive those cars, they'll just go buy a new one. And he said there were some sections you could go and there were just rows of cars that would look like a car lot. All the cars that were broken down, and it could have been something simple, but they're just left out there to sit in the desert. <laughs> yeah, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> no. No, it, but the, the main reason is because we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that every aspect of everything that we do, whether it's manufacturing or whatever. I mean, one of the parts that I liked about history was going through uh, 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 the, not the machine age, but what was it called, the, the industrial age, when all of these new uh, people were being given uh, wisdom by God to come up with everything from the cotton gin to printing presses to whatever it may be until the point where we got, well, look how far we've come in just 100 years with the airplane. I mean, it's just phenomenal, you know, and yet with all the technology, we can send people to the moon, but we can't get more than 18 miles to the gallon in a car. I mean, I don't get that one. Maybe somebody can help me out afterwards. So let's go back to Acts chapter 13. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in what? The grace of God. The next Sabbath, now this would be amazing. The next Sabbath, almost the entire city comes together. So somewhere between the previous week and this week, these people who are sitting there have gone out to talk to their friends, their neighbors, their family, and they have told them about the wonder of this new of this gospel that is being presented. And so they come together and Paul and Barnabas stand up there and tell them how they can feel good about themselves. Now what do they do? They preach the gospel. They preach the gospel. 
And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Uh, wait a minute, let's go back to 44. The next Sabbath, almost the entire city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. That's amazing. Uh, go, go downtown and stand on the street corner and stand up and open the Bible and just read it and see how many people would be willing to stop and listen. Not very many. Do you know why? Because the word of God brings conviction. Hearing by the word of God. And so when we present the word of God, it convicts people just as every minister of the gospel and every prophet who has ever uh, uh, given a message go to the Old Testament and it's the same thing. Sin, righteousness, and the coming judgment. When John stands before Herod, sin, righteousness, the coming judgment. Paul stands on Mars Hill, sin, righteousness, and the coming judgment. This is what is constantly being presented because there is no other message. And so when these people are hearing this, when you go into a country, for example, and I've shared this with you before, but when we got to Liberia, England the same way, I can remember as a kid going back to England with, with dad as a church planter over there, when we got off the plane, there were like, Hundreds and thousands of people who were standing at the airport just waiting to hear the message that dad was going to preach. No, there weren't. There was nobody that showed up. And when we went to Liberia, we found the exact same thing. They weren't lined up to hear the truth of God's word because the truth of God's word brings conviction to the heart. It brings conviction to the soul. It demands a change. We have talked about revival in the past. You can't have revival in your heart if there is nothing in your life that changes or in mine. So here are people that are being, that are being changed. The Holy Spirit is, is, is uh, convicting the hearts of the people. And when the Jews saw the crowds, though they were filled with jealousy... Why, why would they be jealous? They didn't like the Gentiles anyway. They began to contradict what was written by Paul, or what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Verse 46, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. He's talking to the Jews. Since you thrust it aside or cast it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Here we have an amazing testimony to the power of the Holy Spirit of God. We already learned in Acts chapter 1 that the Holy Spirit has been given by the Lord Jesus Christ, or it came on in Acts chapter 2. But what does Jesus Christ say in the Great Commission? How much power is given? All power. All power is given unto me, unto Jesus Christ. And therefore, go into all the world, teach or make disciples, and then baptize them once they have been made disciples, and then teach them everything that I have commanded you. That is the role of the church. 
even to this day, 2,000 years later. We are to teach people what the scriptures have to say. And so here we find that these Jews, instead of being thankful to the Lord, I mean, could you imagine Brother Ken Taylor? Can you imagine Brother Ken Taylor writing a letter back from Japan, and we already know, we've already heard, I think he said half of 1% of people even go to church or are, are saved in Japan. And, and he sends this letter back and says, you know what, what a wonderful working of the Holy Spirit. And there was revival that has broken out here and regeneration has taken place. And this last month we had a thousand people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of us go, oh man, that's just terrible. We wouldn't do that, would we? What would we do? We would rejoice. Luke says that there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over every sinner that repents. And here you have these religious Jews who think because they had God, because they had the prophets, because they had the word of God and the law of God, they think nobody else should have it or they should have it on their terms. And Paul says, doesn't work that way. The Holy Spirit is going to convict the heart and because God knows all things and because he has foreordained that these things take place, look again at verse 46. Since you thrust it aside, what a powerful word. There's a vehemence that is here in this word. You thrust it aside. What is it that you thrust aside? The truth of God's word. Go out here and talk to somebody, anybody on the street. Stop at the, at the post office or at the gas station or at the grocery store and ask them, uh, do you know Jesus Christ? See what they have to say. Oh, I'm not religious. Oh, that's not for me. Oh, I've got my own church. I didn't ask you whether you had your own church. I asked you, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you have a personal relationship with him? Because if there's no personal relationship, it doesn't matter whether you're here or in England or in Africa or in the Philippines, wherever it may be, if there's no personal relationship with Jesus Christ, nothing's going to change for you. And too often when nothing changes on the individual level, guess what happens when we come together as a church? Nothing changes. Because what we see within the congregation should be a direct and will be a direct outpouring of what God is doing in our hearts and lives Monday through Saturday. And then we come together and we worship, we sing, we, we have the instruments played, we have specials being sung, we have whatever it may be, the proclamation of God's word. And if you come and the first thing or the only thing that's going through your mind is, well, the wife and I had an argument this morning. The kids couldn't agree which one of the seven seats in the minivan they wanted to sit in today. Let them walk. <laughs> let, let, let them walk. Whatever it is that's going on. Because you can have a great week all week long and you get up on a Sunday morning and what is the evil one going to do? Huh? Chaos. Guarantee it's going to be chaos on a Sunday morning. And here's what happens. It can start out as something simple. Dad, where's my shoes? Now, I'm a dad. I love dad jokes like anybody else. Sometimes, though, the best answer is, I don't know, I didn't wear them last. <laughs> 
Because you know what we're doing? They asked a serious question, and instead of having a good conversation or a relationship with their own children and encouraging them and helping them so that they also have their little hearts prepared to be able to come to worship on a Sunday morning. You know what we're doing? We're driving a wedge in there. But these people in the book of Acts, they're coming and they've got the entire city behind them. And the reason they've got the entire city is because there was something in what Paul and Barnabas have stated and have taught to them that says, this is life changing. Here, here, here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Is what we believe life changing? How life changing is it? What's that? Yeah, it is. It's a difference. But but is if if that's all it is is just a ticket out of hell to get into heaven, do we really understand what salvation is doing for us? I mean, Romans chapter eight makes it clear that when the when when, when God saves us, that He saves us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, to His Son. That means that there are things that are going to be that, that are going to change, and I've talked with several of you about this at different points, and in, in some of the lessons that we have had, uh, it, what, what God's word will take an ungodly man and make a godly man out of him. It will take an ungodly dad and an ungodly mother, and it will make them a godly mother and father. It will take children that struggle and are ungodly in their deportment and it looks like you can look at their lives and you can say, you know, they may have been an angel when they were two or three, but I mean, now they're just little demons. And God can take those children and He can change them to be conformed to the image of His Son. And we either believe in that power, we were talking about, about Haley or, or, or Colton or my girls or, or your kids, some, some of your kids, uh, you have shared with me, uh, uh, some of you have kids who are not following the Lord today. What do we do in those situations? Do we give up on them? Do we pretend that, that whatever they're doing in their life is acceptable? And Well, they're, they're Christians, but they just don't follow God. No, the reality is they're probably not believers according to the scriptures. And because they're not believers, what do we have to do? We have to pray for them the way God wants us to pray for them, that God will make them a new creation. You know, if, if you have, and, and some of you know this, there are some who, who have kids or who have siblings that struggle with things like alcohol or different types of, addiction, uh, of addictions. You can put them through every kind of AA or 12-step recovery program and all of those things, and it's not going to change them one bit. It's not going to be a permanent change. The only thing that's going to change that person that's going to change you and I is the work of the Holy Spirit convicting us where we're wrong. This is what happened in Acts chapter 13. These people are coming. They're convicted by the word of God. Their lives are being changed. They're seeing the things that, hey, maybe I shouldn't be saying that thing that I used to say. Maybe I shouldn't be drinking the stuff that I used to drink. Maybe I shouldn't be smoking or I shouldn't be living or I shouldn't be watching the things I used to watch. Or I shouldn't be listening to the type of music that I used to listen to. Because when God comes in, he changes us not to be a Sunday Christian, but to be an everyday true believer. A believer whose heart is filled with worship. You see, 
we, when we understand the scriptures, God's word is going to change us to the point where we learn to worship him every single day. Look what happened in the Old Testament. Let's talk about the Old Testament Jews, for example. The children of Israel, they were out in the wilderness. God gives them the Ten Commandments. We know that the Ten Commandments were not given for the purposes of bringing the children of Israel to God. It couldn't do it. It was there to show the children of Israel how far removed they were from the holiness of God. And so on, on, on the Sabbath day, they were given one day and they were told they had to stop working. And it was for the purposes of bringing their minds and their bodies, everything together for the purposes of worshiping God on that one day. It was a command. Now, we as believers, on the other hand, we find our eternal Sabbath is found in Jesus Christ. We can worship on any day, and we should worship on any day. The difference is the children of Israel were given that command and they were given the command to be able to worship God or to set that day apart. Uh, what happened? They're out in the middle of the wilderness and they're complaining about food. And so God sends them what? Manna and quail. Okay. So God sends these two provisions for them. And Moses is very clear. On the Sabbath day, the day before the Sabbath, you have to collect how much? Twice as much. First Sabbath, everybody's collected twice as much. And the Israelites, some of them, what do they do? They go out and look. What's that, Samuel? They didn't do it. They go out and look. But again, God's mercy and his providence is just amazing because the Bible is very clear that those who gathered little had enough and those who gathered too much had just the right amount. And it showed the children of Israel, it was meant to show the children of Israel that obeying God is always the answer. If we follow and obey God's word, he is the one that will provide. And But too often, what do we do? Instead of trusting God, instead of obeying him, sometimes it's easier to whip out the credit card. Sometimes it's easier to whatever it may be that we've got going on in our lives. Instead of trusting him and saying, Lord, you can provide for me. And again, this is what we find is taking place in Acts chapter 13. These people, these devout converts, they're following, they're urging them to continue in the grace of God. And, and, and I'm sure that in the New Testament church, they weren't just urging them to continue in the grace of God on a Sunday morning from 11 to 12 o'clock. It was radical, radical Christianity that was changing them, that was making them conform to the image of Jesus Christ in every aspect of their life. Do you realize that in the early New Testament church there were periods of intense persecution? If you got saved and came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ during the service on a Sunday, you could be lion food by Monday night. The Christians knew what they were getting themselves in for. It wasn't simply a testimony standing up and saying, well, yes, I've been saved. I've said the prayer. I've done whatever it may be. Has anything in your life changed? Well, to the New Testament Christian, yes, my life has changed to the point where I have just placed my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm willing to go to death for him tomorrow. 
And yet in our life, we struggle because we don't want to give God more than a little token. We talk about giving to the church. And, and, and there are times that I think that if we were willing to give God more than just a fraction of the time, and I'm talking about a total everything in your life. There's 168 hours in a week. If we were talking about giving a God a tithe of everything, how much would we give him? 16 hours. 16.8 hours to be precise. And so then we have to take away the hour and a half on Sunday, maybe an hour for Sunday school. How much time do we spend reading the Word of God? How much time do we spend fellowshipping with other believers? How much time do we spend praying? And I think that if we were going to be very honest with one another, there are probably a lot of weeks where we're not actually worshiping God for 16.8 hours a week. You know, there are times when you can be doing whatever it is and you have all good intentions. And you sit down and you pick up your Bible or you open your Bible app. And as soon as you open up your Bible app or you bow your head and you've got the prayer list and you start praying, what's going to happen? Phone rings. Somebody stops by and knocks on the door. Somebody calls up and they've got some bad news. And instead of trusting the sovereign providence of God and recognizing that God has put those things in our path, we get upset. I remember seeing a little cartoon. Anybody remember Family Circus? Okay. Cute little, I mean, there were some, there were some really good little life lessons that were in there. And I remember one of them, there's, there's two... Uh, there's there's two sections on this particular one. I can see it in my head, and the dad is driving. You know, the guy with the glasses, and 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 he's 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 driving, and they get stopped at a, uh, at, a, at, a at a railroad crossing, and this big long train is coming, and and all you see in the first picture is the dad just star star exclamation. You know, he's obviously very upset, and the next picture shows the little fellow sitting in the back seat, and he's so excited, and he says, "Dad, isn't it wonderful? We got to watch a train together." Isn't that the way it should be with us? If God has ordained that these things are going to be put in our path and we are a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we trusted him with our salvation, the bottom line is why can't we trust him with the rest of our life? I know it's not easy to do. Because we like to come even at prayer time. We come at prayer time and we say we've got all of these things we want to pray about. And so we lay it all out before the Lord. And we say, Lord, we're going to cast our cares upon you because you care for us. And then we get up and we pick that great big backpack up of all of the problems and all of the troubles and all the struggles. And we throw it back over our back and walk out and say, Lord, thank you for listening. I got it from here. You ever done that? I know I have. But these people in Acts chapter 14, these brand new converts, they have come to the point where they recognize the Jews on their part. They, they see, as Paul says, you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And what is sad is that even though they did not inherit eternal life, they had the same opportunity that was given they heard the word of god and the holy spirit convicts their heart and what do they do they close off their mind they close off their heart they 
quench the working of the Holy Spirit of God because they don't want to know the truth. But these other converts and even many of the Jews, they follow, they're continuing in the grace of God, they're hearing the word of God. And as it says in verse 47, I have made you a light for the Gentiles. Look with me at one more verse, Matthew Matthew chapter 5. And look at verse, if somebody could read verse 13. Matthew 5, 13. Okay. Somebody else read verse 14. Okay, and verse 15. Before we read verse 16, and I'm going to have somebody read that one. Think about these believers, these new converts in Acts chapter 13. Remember what we said earlier in the Great Commission. The Lord Jesus Christ reminds his disciples that they are to teach all the nations what he has commanded them. What has he commanded us as believers to be, according to these two verses? A light and salt. Now, if we are commanded to be salt and light to a lost and dying world, can we do that when we're just here on a Sunday morning? No. How else do we reflect that to the world? We have to be where? We have to be out there in the world. That means when we're driving, when we're conducting business, when we're in the grocery store, when we're wherever we're at, we have to be living in such a way that people look at us and they say, why are you so different? What makes you different? Now somebody read verse 16. Okay. That they may see what? Whose good works? Who, whose good works is he talking about here? Yours. Your good works. And they have to be able to see that, and in so doing, I believe it gives us the opportunity to be able to present them or to show them why Jesus Christ does make a difference. You see, there are a lot of people that believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, there are a lot of false religions that believe in Jesus Christ. You ask a Muslim, even a Muslim believes that Jesus Christ existed. They believe that he was a prophet. But they don't believe in the Jesus Christ of the Bible. The Mormons believe in Jesus Christ. The LDS Church believes in Jesus Christ. But they don't believe in the Jesus Christ of the Bible. 
So if they, who's they, the lost world, sees your good works and will give glory to your Father who is in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Be ready always to give an answer to everyone who asks you of the reason of the hope that is within you. With what? Meekness and fear. Listen, true biblical Christianity is not going to puff you up and fill you with pride. True biblical Christianity is going to be amazed that God even saved you. True biblical Christianity is going to change you from the inside out and it's going to bring you to the point where you are able to look at other people and tell them, Jesus Christ alone changed me and he can change you as well. Listen, if we don't really believe that God can change us, if we really don't believe that God can take somebody who is a drunkard and make a sober person out of them, if we don't believe that God can take an addict and take that addiction away, we don't believe the truth of Scripture. We looked at this yesterday. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul said, Such were some of you. He gives a long list of all the nasty stuff that's going on that was even found within the church at times. And he says, such were some of you, but you have been washed, you have been sanctified, you have been justified. God is coming back for you, for his bride. And the Bible is very clear that he is going to come and find a bride who has made herself ready. You and I need to be prepared for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the account, the narrative that was given in in Acts chapter 13. Thank you that these new converts were willing to follow the teaching of the scriptures, to, to follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit as he not only convicted them of their sin and brought them to repentance, but that their lives changed to the point where they were becoming salt and light. If we are truly being salt and light, there are going to be times that the world is going to hate us. That they are going to be angry and they are not going to want to be around us because it's convicting. I pray, Lord, that you would help us not to worry about that, but to simply tell the truth. Because we love others, we are being brought to have an agape love, a Christ-like sacrificial love. And we are willing to give our lives as you lay down your life for us. Thank you, Father, for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.